Well, good morning, church. As we uh, come together now to sit under the Scripture, uh, you know, we, we, I preach through passages of Scripture, so the, the text is printed, at least part of it, in the worship guide, so it's, the text is there for you to listen to and follow along with. And, and as we open the Scripture, uh, none of us, I'm going to say this later, are grace graduates. None of us have arrived. All of us have ongoing battles with sin. So as we study the Bible, no matter how long you've been a believer, um, we want the Holy Spirit to shape us in what we call a transformative understanding of the Bible or going further into the light of who Christ is. So that, that, that's what we're about. And, and the question I want to ask you this morning is, how are you receiving the kingdom of Christ? Or how are you receiving the king? We've gone through chapter 10 of Matthew, and in that we have Christ saying some very difficult things about the path of discipleship. And now we come to a section in chapters 11 and 12 where there's some pushback against Christ. There's some opposition to the ministry of the Lord. And this morning we're going to look at three responses to the inbreaking of the kingdom of Christ. Three responses from John the Baptist, from the cynics and the critics, and from the apathetics. So three different groups. And as we do that, the question is, how are we receiving the kingdom? Now, the kingdom of Christ is the ongoing reign of the living God in our lives, inaugurated by the cross, resurrection, and the outpoured Holy Spirit. There is a confession of faith called the Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. It says, what do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? And here's the answer. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray that we would, by the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, submit ourselves more and more to you. That we would pray for the preservation and the increase of the church, the growth of the church under the gospel. And then we, we would destroy every obstacle against the character of God and the Word of God until the fullness of Christ is in us. So it's ongoing. It is submitting more and more. It is seeing God preserve and increase His kingdom. It is destroying every speculation against the character of God and the Word of God. So. The, the, the kingdom and receiving the kingdom. The kingdom breaks in. Um, so hear the scripture. We're going to be in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 24. We'll deal with the passage in the middle next week, God willing. It says, now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Just stop there for a second. John the Baptist is in prison. We'll find out more next week, but because he's spoken the truth about a key leader who's living in an openly immoral relationship. So he's thrown in prison. He's in prison, and he sent word to, by his disciples, and he said to Christ, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 16 now. 
But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done and because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Two key Jewish villages. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile villages in Phoenicia, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it, is, it will be more bearable or tolerable for, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. So, so three responses to the kingdom. The, the, the first response is the response from John the Baptist. And jo John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his men out and he says, go and ask this. Ask if, if, if Jesus is indeed Messiah or should we look for someone else? And, and so they come and Jesus says, go back and tell John this. And he starts talking about things like the, the blind sea, the lepers are are, are, are healed, the, the deaf hear, the gospel is preached. And he's just quoting the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 28, it says this regarding the coming Messiah, or chapter 29, it says verse 18, and the day the deaf shall hear and, and the works, the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, and the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And so what he does, he just starts, he says, go tell John this, and Jesus is quoting scripture. He says, basically, the blind see, quoting Isaiah 29 and 35. He says, the lame are walking, quoting Isaiah 35. He says, the lepers are healed, quoting Isaiah 53. The deaf hear, quoting Isaiah 29. He says, the dead are raised, Isaiah 26. And the poor hear the good news, Isaiah 61 and other places. In other words, go back and tell him that, that, that this word is being accomplished and tell him to be glad. So John the Baptist represents, I want you to understand this. John the Baptist represents people who have, an, who have honest doubts because they have a misplaced expectation in the kingdom. See, John the Baptist, talk about him more next week. John the Baptist was one of my favorite people. Uh, John the Baptist was fully a man and then some. You read Matthew 3 and John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance. And John the Baptist says the, the ax is at the root of the tree. He's shaken that tree, and the kingdom is coming. And he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and he says, you bunch of snakes, not very complimentary, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And he says to the Jews who are listening to him and hanging on his words, he says, don't be proud that you have Abraham as your father. He says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And he said, repent and believe. He was preparing the message of the way for Messiah. And, 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 but if you read John the Baptist, I think John the Baptist, as I read scripture, was expecting a kingdom that was strong and outgoing and overthrowing the Roman yoke and bringing back the golden age of, of, of the Palestine and the Jews. And he thought there was going to be a violent overthrow and he was one of the zealots pushing for it. He did not understand the kingdom. Therefore, he was disappointed. He had honest doubts. And I think the same can happen to us. We can forget that the kingdom of God is about servanthood and, 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 and turning the other cheek and praying for our enemies and experiencing the grace of the Christ, absolutely, but, but also enduring persecutions. And John the Baptist was looking for this ongoing glorious kingdom that would restore the golden rule. See, in John chapter 18, when he's being betrayed and before his crucifixion, Jesus is talking to Pilate, the Roman authority, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you were a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. My kingdom is not of this world. And, and, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember the story, there's a, they came to arrest Jesus, and Jesus stepped forward, and he says, I am he, and they fell to the ground because of his majesty. It's a really wonderful story. But in the midst of all of that, Peter takes out a sword, and Peter's not a very, very good with the sword, and he, he tries to, you know, do in one of the chief priest's servants, a guy named Malchus, and he misses and he chops his ear off. And Jesus says, put your sword up, Peter, put your sword up. And so he reaches out and he heals the ear of Malchus. And then Jesus says this, do you not know that if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels? Guys, that's 130,000 to 150,000 angels. And that is a big army. He says, but that's not what I'm here. I'm here to die on the cross basically for the sins of my people. I'm here to establish a kingdom of servanthood and forgiveness and mercy. John the Baptist was disappointed because he didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. Misplaced expectations. And I thought about us and how this relates to us. And how do you receive the kingdom? And I thought of several areas where, quite frankly, there can be disappointment. One area is disappointment is when we make the cross not central, but it's in the circle, but it's in the outer periphery of the circle. And so because the cross is in the outer periphery, something else takes its place. And because of that, we get disappointed in the kingdom. Listen, you've got to keep the cross central. But we've got to realize why, why Jesus would heal people and tell them, don't tell anybody that I healed you. Or, or one time it says, go show the priest you've been healed of leprosy and them only. Or go tell your family and no one else. And the question is, why? Why did Jesus say, don't, don't tell anybody? And here's the answer. 
Christ came to be a sacrifice for sin and to fulfill the Old Testament promises and sacrificial system. He did not come to be known primarily as a healer. Or he would have a large crowd following him, a lot of people listening to him, a lot of people. And then all of a sudden he'd turn to his disciples and say, let's go to the next village. I mean, they could have just stayed there and to have more and more and more people. He said, no, we've got to go to the next village because they've got to hear the good news too. Or go to the other side of the lake because they've got to hear the good news too. So, so it, it, we can be disappointed when, when we don't make the cross central. Secondly, just a few areas. We can be, we can be disappointed when we become what I call extra biblical in our orientation and expectation. I'm going to just mention this briefly. It deserves a lot more discussion. There is a movement that's about 100 years old called the, the health and wealth gospel. That's not the gospel or prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel. And these people write books, and I think some of them are very sincere. But, 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 but basically what they say is this. They said that, that there is, if you have a lack of wealth or a lack of health, it's because you have a lack of faith. And they don't deal with the biblical text. They just deal with slogans. The cross is not central, and it becomes very man-centered. And it's all about accumulating things and, uh, and speaking words of knowledge, whatever. And, and it, it detracts from the gospel message, but it's extra-biblical. And, it, and if you are suffering financially or you're suffering physically, these people will tell you, it's because you do not have faith. What a bunch of junk. And it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel of grace. There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon who said this. He said, I believe that it is anti-Christian. He died in 1898. Okay. It is anti-Christian and unholy for any Christian to live with the object of merely accumulating wealth. You can't, you can't argue with that. That's what they say they're about. He goes on and says, I'll say it again, to, to live with the object only of accumulating wealth is anti-Christian. And yet they will tell you that wealth and health are part of the part of what the atonement is all about. The atonement is all about the forgiveness of sins. And so if you, if you buy into that, and I hope you have not, if you buy into that, then, then you're, you're disappointed because you have an extra biblical, non-cross-driven theology. Thirdly, I think you just, we can be disappointed with life. Life is hard sometimes. And life is hard sometimes at special times in your life. It's really hard sometimes. John is in prison. Because he taught the truth. And I can see John sitting there late at night, you know, with, you know, no internet, no TV, nothing to occupy him except his thoughts. And he's thinking something like this, Lord, I did what you told me to do. I just spoke the truth. And this family that's just ungodly has me in prison What's going on? Where's, where's the kingdom? You may have heard Jesus say in John 10, I've come to have, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You go, where's, where's the abundant life? Or if you could have thought about what Paul was going to say about 30 years later, Paul says, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. And you see, to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's that conquering, Lord? Life can be disappointing. I think of Romans 8. Romans 8, of course, one of the favorite verse passages in all the Bible. Romans 8 says, uh, and this incredible chain of events, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. 
And then he just stops and he catches his breath and Paul says, so if God is for us, then who can be against us? Boom. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. Will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then he goes through this, this litany of nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that God is for us. And he's, he's the Savior's at our right hand. And he prays for us. And then he says this in the middle of this passage that is hugely triumphant. Hugely triumphant. Listen. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You go, whoa, you're raining on our parade. The truth is, the Holy Spirit knew that incredible persecution was coming upon the church under a guy named Diocletian and his ilk. And he says, yeah, even in the midst of understanding all this, realize there will be suffering, there will be pain there will be sorrow. In our context, I, I think of people who are here who are just uh, disappointed, quite frankly, in your marriage. It's hard. You're disappointed in your children, maybe your job, relationships, your health. And the truth is, we live in the already but not yet that God is working in our life by his spirit and by his word to shape us. So as so we have, we get disappointed because of unrealistic expectations. Fourthly, to be bluntly honest, I get disappointed because of, of me, me. I understand what the Westminster divines said when they, when they wrote that that in my being, there is a continuous and irreconcilable war that, that I, I, I deal with sin in my life. So do you. So I get disappointed. I said, Lord, please give me the victory. I mean, come on, let me get over this angry spirit, or this bitter attitude or this unforgiving. I forgive him, but I still, I still have to go to the cross every day, every day, every day. Come on, Lord, please. Uh, I think of the Romans 6. I read this passage and I sometimes just kind of shake my head. In Romans 6, Paul's talking about our new life in Christ. But then he says this, he says, we've been set free from sin and we become a slave of righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then he says this verse. He says, but, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I'm, let me tell you something. Before, so those of us who became believers and trusted in Christ when we were a little bit older, some of the things that, that uh, didn't bother us when you received the Holy Spirit started bothering you. And even now, you know, there, there, there are times in your life when you, you're, you're, you're quiet before God and God just says, get this together. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is changing us and it can be painful. Yeah. Um, tell you a story. It's kind of embarrassing, but I'll tell you. So I've been, become a Christian age 19, understood the gospel. And... Uh, 
It was around some guys, and they were telling us basic Bible study and showed us a little diagram about what it means to be a Christian, a very, a very good little diagram and kind of an explanation called the bridge diagram. So my first, my first foray into trying to share the gospel, I was, I was driving home from, from the Citadel, and I had a guy with me, and we were talking. I said, I got, let me tell you what's happened in my life. And I started talking to him. And I started talking to him about how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I didn't use the word sinned. I used an expletive several times. It's embarrassing. And I, I used that expletive several times. And he said, can I, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. I thought Christians didn't curse. And I went, whoa, you're right. You know, I, God had to clean up my language. And, and I find that true of my life now. There are certain areas where I go, I, boom, God says, sometimes you're just disappointed in, in, in you. So here's a, there's a hymn by a guy named Charles Wesley called Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. And one stanza goes like this. It's really a prayer. He says, he says, finish then thy new creation, me. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation and let us be conformed to thee. So, so he's surprised. Finish, finish it, Lord. I, Romans 8, I'm groaning. Creation is groaning. I have rotten attitudes. Do it, Lord. But see, when I, when I go to Scripture, I realize that, 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 that life is going to be a continuous and irreconcilable war. Then it gives me fresh hope to go into the battle. So, so how are you receiving the kingdom? Are you disappointed because you have unrealistic, unbiblical expectations? Is because you're looking for a political kingdom or a military kingdom or, or a kingdom of might and power instead of servanthood and forgiveness and love and mercy? Are you disappointed because you're looking for perfectionism in your life and you still struggle with sin? You're going to be disappointed. Are you disappointed because you've bought into some type of extra biblical gospel that says you, you should be wealthy and healthy and if you don't, you're a loser from the pit of hell? You're, you're going to be disappointed. So my question is, how does a person who has honest doubts and misplaced expectations receive the kingdom? Here's the answer. It's in the text. Jesus just quotes the Bible. I get in the Bible. I read the promises. I understand the concept of, of, of realigning myself and refilling my leaky bucket with the goodness and the mercy of Christ. I'm a leaky bucket, so I need to, I need to cement the holes with the promises and just fill it with the power of the Spirit as I read the Bible. I need the glory in the cross. And understand that Jesus came to be a sin bearer on the cross for me, and the cross must always be central. I had the privilege of going occasionally to North Africa, and there are men and women from Mauritania, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, and Egypt who come to Little Seminary. And, and these people are, are really in places where they're being persecuted. Their churches have been vandalized and burned. Some of them have, are in countries where they stamp Christian on your passport, which means you cannot go to university or get good jobs. I mean, it's tough. And so I'll, I'll sit with them, and most of them don't speak, the well, vast majority don't speak English. And I'll ask through a translator, says, what gives you the encouragement to keep on going? And some of times they'll look at me, these are dear people, they'll look at me like, are you asking me a real question? They say, well, let me, let me tell you why. Because of Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Because of the cross, I know I'm loved eternally. Because of the cross, I have a Father who watches over me. 
Because of the cross, I have the hope of heaven. Because of the cross, I have a network of brothers and sisters who walk with me and weep with me and laugh with me and walk beside me. That's why. And I'm going, exactly. Thank you. You see, today in our, our Muslim friends are beginning something called Ramadan. Ramadan is a monthly fast. Listen, they do this every year for one month now, beginning now through June the 4th, I think it is. They will fast from sun up to sundown. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. They will eat a big meal before the sun comes up, and they will not eat again until the sun goes down. Hopefully that breakfast has a lot of protein. And they eat when the sun goes down. And they do that to achieve merit with Allah. That's it. Because they hope at the end of their days, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, and maybe there's a hope that they go to heaven. And so especially the last week of Ramadan is a huge deal for them. They're trying to achieve merit. That is not the gospel. The gospel is about grace. The gospel says you are eternally loved right now because the perfect life and righteousness of Christ is yours. He died on the cross for your sins as your substitute. Man, that's so, so, it's a glory in the gospel. How do you receive the gospel? If you're disappointed, you glory in the cross. The, the second group were the critics. The, the critics were the ones who sat around and they, they said something like this. They said, Jesus said, what, what should I say to this generation? And then he talked about two nursery rhymes that people participated in. He said, uh, you say to the children's game, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, which is a, a, a children's game about marriage and dancing. And then we, we played a dirge for you, sang a dirge and you did not mourn, which is a children's game about, about having a funeral. You know, children get together and act these things out. Jesus says, in the same way, John the Baptist came eating locusts and wild honey. And, and you said, the guy is weird. He has a demon. He's, Jesus says, I came drinking and eating. And you say, the guy is a profligate, a glutton, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he says, you guys cannot be satisfied. And he's addressing critics. There, there are people out there who just... They're just critical. And one thing I notice about critical people that I, I sometimes laugh at when I'm not angry is that critical people judge everything harshly, whether it's a political party or whether it's a group of, of ethnic whatever or whether it's their family members or their spouse or their kids or whatever. They judge everybody harshly except for themselves. And man, they get a pass. They get a golden pass that gives them into any ride in Disney World. Head of the line, no big deal. And the thing about it, when you come to understand grace, it builds humility. It destroys pride because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. When you see the cross, it just builds humility. It builds approachability. It builds of self-awareness. So there's a song by a guy named Alan Jackson, a country music song. It's a really fun song. He's talking about where I come from. And he's, he's driving a, a big truck in, on the New Jersey Turnpike, and he says he stopped for speeding. And the trooper comes over and starts talking to him. He says, I don't know your accent. I don't know where you've come from. And then he says this. This is the, the, the refrain. 
He says, where I come from is cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying hard to make a living and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. And I, 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 I was listening to that and I was really into it and I thought, this has got to catch you too. And then he says, where I come, working hard to get to heaven. I said, oh my gosh. This is a celebration of the South, cornbread and chicken, front porch sitting, working hard to get to heaven. But that is the antithetical gospel. That if you're a Muslim, you're working hard to get to heaven. If you're a believer, it's already been accomplished. It's received the gift. See, none of us, what happens, none of us are grace graduates. Nobody here has it all together. Therefore, when you understand you need daily grace, then you run to the cross and you glory in Christ. And I believe this. I think it makes you easier to be a friend with, to live with, to be married to, to work with. I just think it, all these things just cascade down out of the glory and the majesty and the goodness of Christ. So, so how, do, how do critics receive the kingdom by going to the cross? Philippians 2 has this incredible passage. It says, um, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And then the next verse, Paul goes somewhere that I, I don't see, I didn't see coming. The very next verse, he says this. Basically, in light of all of these things, listen, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now look at this. So, so Paul says, in light of the glorious gospel, don't be a critical, fault-finding, complaining, belly-aching person. Because if you, if you live with thanksgiving and joy in light of the cross, then you're going to shine like stars in the midst of a wicked and turned and upside down generation. So, so, so how, how do we receive the kingdom if we have a critical spirit? You nip it in the bud by running to the cross and saying, I'm not a grace graduate. And then the third group are the, are the apathetic. And I... We, we cannot understand this passage because we're not first century Jews who believed in their ethnic superiority and believed that they were the only called out people and everybody else was just second string JV people. But, but when Jesus says this, let me tell you something, it created an incredible, tumultuous, upset spirit in these people. I mean, it's amazing. So let me, Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities where they, they believed they were unloved by God. Sodom, without, I'm going to keep this PG, Sodom, Sodom was in the Old Testament a place of, of incredible immorality, death, destruction, and murder. If you want to say somebody, put somebody in the very lower depths, you say, just like Sodom. And so hear, hear that. You're a first century Jew. You think you're ethnically superior. You think you're working your way to heaven, kind of, sort of. And, and this man named Jesus stands up and says, he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works have been done because they did not repent. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, two Jewish villages. 
If the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon that had been done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you're standing there and you're a little older and you're losing your, 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 your best hearing and you've got an 18-year-old friend there who can hear real well and you say, did he say, did, did he just say that these Phoenician cities would have responded when our Jewish cities have not? And your friend says, yeah. He goes, wow, that's strong. Then he says this, then he really jumps in. And, and you, Capernaum, the center of Jesus' operation, you, Capernaum, you who will be, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. You see, Sodom was burned with fire. God burned Sodom. But I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom. And you go, he says it three times, two times, once in the previous paragraph. You go, did he say Sodom? And your 18-year-old go, friend goes, yeah, he said Sodom. He went, oh my gosh. There's a gasp. And what Jesus is saying, he's addressing the apathetic. The apathetic. There's a statement in the bulletin from a guy from France named Diderot who said, it's, it's good to know the difference between hemlock and parsley, but to know the difference in eternity basically is of no consequence. And that's what I hear all over the place today. Who can know? It's no big deal. There are people who will be worshiping here today who are coming with a friend. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. But quite frankly, they're going, ah, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's called heaven. It's called hell. And it's called the cross. And the judgment is coming. And to get to heaven, we trust in the reality of Christ. It's a big deal. And, and, and so I, I look at this and I go, you know, we're, we're consumed with our stock portfolio, our college selection, our vacation location, but not eternity. And I say, do, brothers and sisters, do not be apathetic about the shortness of life and eternity to come. And understand, you're not going to get any help from a culture, the culture we live in, zero help. You, you get it among God's people. You get it on the Lord's Day to say, think, 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 think. So, so give you an example. We are watching a show from Canadian TV called Heartland. It's a good show. It's fun. It's about horses. It's about Banff, Canada, the Canadian Rockies. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's PG. Everybody's nice, even though they're struggling with things and they're lovable people. The, the star of the show was a young woman who, who uh, first couple of seasons, cannot drive because she's not 16. And, but yet she, she's a horse whisperer and she puts together broken marriages and she solves all types of diseases and she is omnicompetent and her name is Amy and she's cute and it's fun and the granddad is a curmudgeon, lovable guy. It's wonderful. You could watch it with your eight-year-old. Most, Yeah, I think so. And, and so they, they, they gather the family table and they talk and they laugh and they're together. There is no, this is zero, zero concept of a God who made the heavens and the earth. Nothing. They have all these beautiful animals, these beautiful snow-capped mountains. Zero. I, I'm sitting there waiting. The only time anything spiritual is when he, an Indian dude comes in and holds a feather up and does something with a feather, which isn't New Testament at all, by the way. And so, and so I'm sitting there, I'm watching, and I'm going, there's nothing here. 
There's nothing, and yet this is PG, and it's something we say is family friendly. Listen, you can be entertained in family friendly movies and TV shows and lose the concept of the gospel. I much prefer sometimes to see the crass, horrible nature of fallen man portrayed that makes you say, We need a great Savior and a gospel to save us. I mean, they're doing just fine without Jesus. You're not going to get, you're not going to get that in our, in our culture. So, yeah, even with what is it, uh, blue bloods, they sit around and they pray together at least. Then they, I've never seen a family drink as much as the, the Reagan family does. Good grief! I mean, they're just having all day and all night. But anyway, that's beside the point. That's another sermon. Anyway, I, 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 my point is. When you understand eternity, it gives you a nobility of spirit and a high calling. What you do counts. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about understanding the gospel, he says, we no longer see men from a, 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 a physical perspective. Men and women have eternal souls. Therefore, verse 20, we are, are ambassadors to Christ. And I'm telling you, you are ambassadors for Christ in your neighborhoods as you engage with people, in, in your workplace, in your families. You represent the, some of them, the only eternity link they will ever hear. Think about that. People are dying and we're the link. Because we walk before God. There's a man named David Berlinski who was a good thinker, and he wrote a play. He's Jewish. He's thinking about World War II, and he's talking about you know in the 20th century that all the men who committed atrocities that are unspeakable. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, all the henchmen in Eastern Europe. All of them denied the existence of God. All of them mocked the character of God. And he writes this little statement. Let me read it to you. He says, somewhere in Eastern Europe in World War II, an SS officer watched languidly his machine gun cradled as an elderly and bearded Hasidic Jew laboriously dug what he knew to be his grave. Standing up straight, he addressed his executioner saying, God is watching what you are doing. And then he was shot dead. And he says this, what Hitler did not believe, what Stalin did not believe, and what Mao Zedong did not believe, and what the SS goons did not believe, and what the Gestapo did not believe, and what the Soviet Secret Service did not believe, and what the commissars and functionaries and swaggering executioners at Auschwitz and Nazi doctors and Communist Party theoreticians and intellectuals and a thousand other party hacks did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. And as far as we can tell, very few of those carrying out the horrors of the 20th century ever worried over this fact, God is watching over what you are doing. That is, after all, he says, the meaning of a secular society. 
You know, what I'm saying is, how, how do you receive the kingdom? Not apathetically. Not with a shrug of the shoulders. But with a sense of calling and nobility for the coming generations, for your contemporaries. Because right now counts forever. And don't, don't forget that. Amen.